0: When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love to them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent a sword will flash in their cities it will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans my people are determined to turn from me even though they call me God most high I will will by no means exalt them How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities, they will follow the Lord, he will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt trembling like sparrows, from Assyria fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord.
1: From the book of Colossians, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. The word of the Lord. Let's stand together for our gospel reading. A reading from the gospel of St. Luke, chapter 12, starting with verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. The gospel of the Lord.
0: Praise to you, Lord Christ.
1: You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all this morning. Really glad to be back this week. Thanks for um, giving Ashley and Lucy and I the space last Sunday to be away. Uh, we were in um, Washington State for um, my sister-in-law's wedding, uh, Ashley's sister's wedding, and it was really beautiful. We stayed on Bainbridge Island, which is kind of a, uh, off of Seattle there, and uh, and that's where near where the wedding was, and then we spent some time in Seattle. I'd never been there before and really enjoyed it. Got to spend time with friends and just really wonderful, and it's lovely that we've gotten to this place in the life of our church where... Um, I can be gone, and I really don't. I have a lot of peace when I'm gone. I mean, I I don't have a lot of peace personally because I just want to be here, and I feel antsy when I'm not here, and I don't know what to do with myself. And if I go to another church, I feel like I should be doing something. And if I don't go to church, I feel like why well, am I not up yet and doing things and all that stuff. But I feel peace in that you guys are going to be great, <laughs> and so I'm thankful that you all got to hear from Deborah last week, and um, it was a wonderful thing. So. Have you ever heard the phrase or uttered the phrase, they don't make things like they used to? Yes, familiar with this. The reality is in our world with mass market consumption, with overseas manufacturing, and with less frequent use of some products, quality on a lot of the things we buy has slipped, just has. Examples of this are refrigerators. Don't make fr- refrigerators like they used to. Dishwashers, washers and dryers. I have this, I want, it's fine. Um, high-end appliances are no longer made to last a long time and previous generations a lot of the products were made that way they want they were made so that you could keep them almost forever and you just had to make kind of small repairs if things broke now it's a lot of times it's just easier to replace stuff don't get me started on televisions right like televisions now if your television breaks a little bit you don't take it to a repair store anymore it's just time to get a new television right <laughs> Um, before 1960, appliances were built to be maintained, and they could be rebuilt, and they could be reused, and there were stores that did repairs for those kind of things, but that's not really the case anymore. Um, Ashley and I can't find an affordable vacuum cleaner that lasts us very long at all. <laughs> just, just gone. Just gone. Um, Decades ago, though, vacuums were made to last. They had door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesmen who went and would show you how powerful and how strong and how long these vacuum cleaners would last. They got the job done and they rarely broke down. Think about your oven for a second. Maybe you've never noticed your oven much. You know, it just doesn't seem to break. But there was an oven that existed at one point that gained a cult following back in the day, and it was manufactured by Chambers. And their oven range used this innovative insulation method. And the insulation was so thick that the oven would just shut off after it was preheated. But it stayed hot long enough to continue to cook food thanks to what was retained in the heat. It was powerful. But this kind of product is a thing of the past. Think about furniture for a second. You can still find long-lasting furniture. Of course you can. Um, I sat on a couch last week in Seattle. And I sat on it and I was like, oh my gosh, this couch is amazing. We have to get a couch like this. And then they told me where they bought it from and how much they paid it for, paid for it. And I said, okay, I'm going to stay with cheap couches. It's fine. You know, I'm not, not going to sit on this kind of luxury in, in my lifetime. Um, but most affordable furniture is just throwaway stuff. It's stuff you, when you're done with it, you leave it in front of your house and hope somebody comes and picks it up at some point, right? Like that's what we do. Milk containers. This is not the whole sermon, by the way, but think about milk containers for a minute. Decades ago, milk came in glass bottles exclusively. It was delivered to your door. Can you imagine that? But then everything changed to plastic, and now there's this kind of like, there's, we're discovering environmental issues with the plastic and kind of what we do with that. And so we're wondering now if the milk industry will find another way to distribute this kind of milk. But, but yeah. And then there are products that I did some research on this. There are products that you can buy that do last a long time. They last the longest. So think about this. You can make an investment in something that's good and it will last. So Leatherman tools or Craftsman tools last a long time. Cast iron pans, you can get these and they last forever. Jansport backpacks, believe it or not. They stand the test of time. They can go through a lot. Fisher space pens, okay? David Wally has some of these and they write upside down, you know? Apparently they last forever. Um, Apparently the MacBook Air is one of the best, longest lasting computers ever. I didn't realize that. Carhartt jackets, which I've never worn one of these in my life, but I guess they're really thick jackets that just last forever. And then L.L. Bean duck boots, okay? Not the most fashionable thing in the world, let's be real, but they'll last you a long time. Um, So this isn't a commercial. I'm not telling you to buy these products, but these are things that that last long. And one of the ways, the reason I'm bringing this up is um, I want us to focus today on what are the things in life that last? What are the things that stand the test of time? The Christian life is about seeking out those things that last, that thing particularly that lasts and recognizing that so many of the things we hold on to are fleeting. And one of the themes I keep coming back to over, over and over again in the past year, you guys have probably noticed this, is just this idea and recognition that the Christian path is so radically different from anything else in our world. And maybe I sound like a broken record because I keep saying this over and over again, but, but I think sometimes we get lulled into thinking that Christianity and this path of, of being a Christian is really just kind of one of the ways to be a good neighbor in society <laughs> or one of the ways to be a good person or one of the ways to live ethically. We don't think about Christianity as this radical upside down, inside out way of living. And being a Christian is not something we just kind of float into naturally it, it doesn't, isn't just something that seems like makes the most sense so we kind of fit in there. This is a radical thing. In our Colossians text that I read a minute ago, Paul has been talking about the resurrection and he's saying that there's these implications for the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. So that means everything changes. Like there's these implications on how we live. So if you're raised with Christ, and Paul would say that's what happens in baptism, if you're raised with Christ, you should look for things above is what he says. And this is the process of turning our attention away from things that belong to the present world of change and decay and turning them towards God's new world. That's this idea of spiritual formation, taking our affections and our eyes off of these things that are temporary and fading away and putting them on God's new world, which will last. But part of how we do this is we have to dissect our culture. We have to be vigilant and look at our world and look at our culture and and go, what is that narrative in my culture teaching me? How is it forming me? How is it shaping me? What is it doing in my heart? I think we live with two competing temptations as Christians. On one hand, we're tempted to think that Christianity is just going with the flow. But if we aren't thinking or looking closely, what happens is we get swept into how the world defines the good life. We aren't vigilant. We aren't paying attention to what's happening. And this is attractive because we want, I think a lot of us want our Christian life to just fit in nicely with the rest of our cultural narratives. We don't want there to be dissonance. We don't want there to be discomfort. We want it to just fit in nicely with the rest of our lives. So that's one temptation, the go with the flow temptation. Christianity is just this thing I can kind of add on and I can fit in and just live my life in the rest of the cultural stream. The other temptation is the opposite end, and that's legalism. And legalism is this idea of legalistically following a set of rules and regulations and thinking that that's all Christianity is. Maybe some of us grew up in these kind of environments. Christianity was about the rules that you followed We want to know how to do specific things and get a specific outcome. I think this is attractive because a lot of times, and certain personalities are drawn to this more than others, but we want concrete things. We want things that are tangible, that make sense. We go, I can follow a list of rules, but this whole idea of grace feels overwhelming. I can't categorize that. I can't fit that. The commands that Paul gives in this section, and he gives a lot of commands, he says, hey, put to death all of this stuff because it's bad. But these things are not legalistic Christian rules, nor are they just go-with-the-flow guidelines for a happy life. No. Paul knows legalism doesn't work. It's not life-giving. He knows that you have to be vigilant and intentional about the Christian life. Paul is not saying we can go with the flow like the romanticists or the existentialists, that the moral positions he's commending will just come naturally. No, we have to reflect. We have to have moral effort and vigilance. No, spiritual formation for Paul matters. Being intentional, listening to the rhythms of God's grace and God's love. And Christians are called to live now in a way that anticipates God's future world that there will be a day when God's kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Christians are called to embody that reality now, to live that now. And this kind of living requires cultivation and vigilance. Now, verse two is often misunderstood. So when Paul says, think about things that are above, not things that are on earth, that can be kind of confusing for us. Paul is not saying that the earth is bad and things that are physical are bad, and that we need to keep our eyes on a spiritual world that's far away somewhere. Rather, when Paul says on earth, he's referring to those styles of behavior which are turned away from God, the creator. Those things don't last. They're being corrupted. They're not reflecting God's love and God's stewardship. Stewardship. So Paul adopts this language of upper and lower to make a moral point, but he's not saying, and I can't say this enough, he's not saying physical matter is bad, like fleshly matter is bad, and that there's something kind of ethereal and angelic that's good. No, he's not saying that. Why do we know that he's not saying that? Well, because the resurrection was physical. Resurrection is, means a real body rising from the grave. And if scripture tells us that if, if, Christ, if God did that in Christ, in Christ's body, he's going to do that for the rest of creation. All will be made right. For a number of years, I don't talk about this too much, but I, I pastored a small church, the first church I was a lead pastor at in downtown Tulsa. It was a church that we planted when I was 22, and it was a really unique church. Um, There was a lot of similarities with this community, and then also a lot of differences. Um, It was a smaller community, very, very young, probably even younger than this this church. But uh, also, a lot of these people had been raised in pretty fundamentalist and conservative Christian circles. And because of that, most of them, a lot of college students, most of them had just rejected their church of their upbringing completely, okay? And they were ready to just burn it all down, <laughs> okay? So it was a kind of hyper deconstruction, okay? Ready to just burn it all down. And I was kind of at that place in my life. I felt called to pa- pastor, but I also was, um, you know, I-, I believed in the church, but I also wanted to reimagine church completely. So we did a lot of things that were just kind of throwing stuff to the wall to see if it would stick, right? Like, we just tried a bunch of stuff. A lot of, like, art stations in the church. We would do discussion during the sermon, and one of the things we did is a lot of the songs that we sang were not really, like, orthodox Christian songs. We sang a lot of weird songs, okay? <laughs> and But one of the songs that we sang that I loved, and we tried to give artistic kind of expression for people, but one of those songs that we sang was a band called, was from a band called Page France, and I don't know if anybody's ever heard of them before, but the song's called Jesus, and it's super hippie sounding, but it goes, um, Jesus came up through the ground so dirty, worms in his hair and a hand so sturdy. He calls us his magic, we call him worthy. Jesus came up through the ground so dirty. So not all of that's biblical imagery, right? So, um, but we sang this and our community loved this. And it goes on to sing to, to say, Jesus will dance while we drink his wine with soldiers and thieves and a sword in his side. And the first verse is about b- bees and banana trees and kazoos and rushing streams. And it's just this crazy song, but I loved it. And I loved this song. And uh, the older members of our congregation just started calling it the worm song. So we'd have Easter Sunday and they'd come back and say, we're not singing the worm song on Easter Sunday, are we? But, but I loved it. And the reason why is because it expressed the physicality of resurrection that this is really earthy imagery. Our faith is embodied. It's real. Our hope is embodied. It involves real resurrection from a real tomb with real dirt. God's new world will be about the healing of flesh and blood and real wine and real dancing. And even though I was suspicious of some of the lyrics of this song, I knew at least that our community was singing a picture of a physically embodied faith. That's what we're about. Paul reminds the people here of who they already are in Christ. He's writing to a church. And any conversation that we ever have in church about our behavior, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to act, it can't ever begin with our behavior. Our behavior. It has to begin with what God has done. We can't begin to talk about the Christian life by saying, this is what we do. No, Paul says, Christ has risen from the dead. Resurrection has occurred as an act of God and we get to participate in that reality. How do we do that? Well, for Paul, he says, through baptism, we are part of the people of God. We don't have to do anything else. We've been raised with Christ. There aren't levels that we achieve. You don't get to be a level one Christian. And then if you do enough, you get to be a level two Christian. No, that's not how it works. You've been raised with Christ in baptism, done, right? There were some Christians in Colossae who were under the belief that they needed like deeper experiences. They needed ecstatic experiences to be fully in Christ. And some of them were trying to earn their place through these elaborate practices of self-denial and the pursuit of visions, okay? Okay. So we're trying to get these visions and then they were trying to be radical in their self-denial so that they could reach different levels. Now, for some of you, when we do things here, like we follow the church calendar, we make the sign of the cross, when we're serious about the sacraments, when we have even certain colors for certain seasons, some of you, that may be new to you. You may be, okay, that's strange, that's odd. And we do these things because we think they matter, they form us in a particular way. They point us to an embodied faith where our physicality matters. But I wanna say this clearly, you will never get more of God through any of these practices, okay? None of these practices make us higher on a Christian level. No Christian practices make us more of an insider. You have died with Christ and were raised with him. You have a new identity and that's it. When we do spiritual formation practices, the ones that we do here, the ones that Paul's talking about here, we are doing this to live, to learn and to, be, and to be formed and to live as the people we already are. We're called to live out the identity that we've already been given. If you've come to faith and you followed him in baptism, you are already part of the family of God. Now, maybe you're here today and you say, I haven't been baptized yet, not as, a, not as an infant, not as an adult, And of course, as a pastor, my response is, well, let's do it, (laughs) let's, let's get baptized, that's great. And you are welcome anytime. And then also I believe that wherever you are in that journey, that God's grace meets you there, that there's a foretaste of that reality right where you are. Spiritual formation is about living out the identity that we already have in Christ. One of the great church fathers, Athanasius, once described the human plight as a misdirection of the senses. So as human beings, we naturally, our senses are misdirected, that we're pointed off course. Human beings have turned their eyes no longer upward, but downward, Athanasius said. They were seeking about God in nature and in the world of sense, feigning gods for themselves human beings are delivered from this plight, this is me now, not Athanasius, as they're joined to the death and resurrection of Christ. And spiritual formation is about getting our lives in line with that new identity. Paul also says in this passage that life in Christ is hidden. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that our faith is secret. I want to make that clear. It's not that faith is a private thing and not a public thing. We hear that a lot in our culture where we go, yeah, I'm a Christian, I have a faith, but it's private. I don't really talk about it very much. No, that's not what Paul's getting at. Hidden means that other people will not always see the results of this new life. Okay? As a pastor, um, I I hear a lot about the church. I run in certain circles. I see a lot of church controversies um, that I hear about. And then also I see on social media that maybe many of you may not see or may not even care about. Um, But there's always some kind of controversy in the church going on. And it's usually a big, kind of a big controversy that everybody's trying to sort through. This week, the controversy had to do with an author named Joshua Harris. And Josh Harris wrote a famous book, back in the nineties called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Anybody want to admit to reading that book or heard heard of the book? Yeah. Okay. Heard of the book. Okay. And really, this was part of what was really popular in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, and even some places now in the church, and it was um, kind of the purity culture movement is what we might call that, and really celebrating and trying to find a way and push young people in youth groups and in churches to remain abstinent until marriage. That was the big, so some of you, this probably dates me really bad, but the True Love Waits movement was kind of a big part of that, and and everything, and, um, and so Josh Harris wrote this book, and it was kind of like a whole alternative to even dating at all. It was like kind of a countercultural, you know, here's a different thing to do with that. Well, what's wrong with trying to encourage young people to remain abstinent until marriage? Nothing, nothing. In fact, the Christian ethic calls us to a reality where marriage is the only appropriate context for sexual union, and that's radical in our culture. But in this purity culture, there were also a lot of promises made that if you abstain from sex now, your sex life is gonna be way better when you're married was one of the promises, right? In fact, you're gonna have the best sex life ever just magically because you never pursued this before that. That was one of the promises. Uh, There was even promises that went beyond that. Marriage will be much easier for you. In fact, it's gonna be a breeze, It's gonna just be magically better. I remember friends who bragged that they didn't even kiss their fiance until their first kiss on their wedding day, right? And that was kind of a badge of honor. Purity culture in the church also brought with it a lot of shame and past mistakes um, where many Christian teens felt that they weren't even supposed to wanna have sex until they were married, that that was bad and filthy and that they definitely weren't supposed to talk about it. Well, the controversy this past week was that Harris just announced that he's getting divorced and that he's rejected Christianity. Um, and, I, and I pray for Josh. Josh is brilliant. I, I've listened to, he did a TED Talk recently. He's a brilliant guy. And I pray that he will find hope and grace and that he'll return to the faith. Um, but for many, this announcement, many of us that grew up in this, this announcement was like a final shattering of purity culture, Right? It was recognizing that this poster child's marriage has failed. And so that system, there's something, we've always suspected there's something wrong with that system, but that shame and those false promises are indeed false. Christian purity culture represents a fundamental misunderstanding of Christian ethics. Why? Because we don't live Christianly in order to get tangible benefits. That's hard. That's so hard to say. Like, This is part of the prosperity gospel, the myth of the prosperity gospel, that if you live a certain way, then you're gonna get this prosperity, but that's not why we live Christianly. We don't follow the commands of scripture either out of legalism or because we desire a certain prosperity or a certain life that's going to be better. Living Christianly is a struggle and it's recognizing that faith is a struggle. Christian virtue is a struggle that's different from what's instinctual for us. And Paul would say, it's hidden. In other words, we may never see the tangible benefits of living faithfully. Gosh, that's so hard as a pastor to say. because I wanna say to people, live all of this way and then you're gonna see your life's gonna be great and magical and perfect. But the reality is, even though there is a deeper, a deeper beauty that comes out of our life, we don't see these tangible benefits often. Eugene Peterson says of this chapter, there often comes a time after we become familiar with the ideas and beliefs of the Christian faith that we lose the cantering rhythms of poetry and settle into plodding workhorse prose when the flashing world of the imagination gets submerged under the heavier, grayer world of conduct. Being Christian is a daily thing, is what he's saying here. But he also says, if the Christian life means anything at all, it finally has to get into the world of what we do between waking and sleeping, into the realm of routine, ordinary speech, habitual responses, casual reactions. In other words, the Christian faith begins to form us in our everyday life. It shapes our behavior even the false teachers of Colossae taught that there were these like hidden treasures that needed to be uncovered. Paul protests them and basically says that the entire life of the Christian is hidden in Christ. Christ is the treasure. Why do we live Christianly? For Christ. Not for tangible benefits. He is the treasure. There's no secrets yet to be uncovered. The Christian has already been joined to Christ and shares in the life of the risen Lord. And because of that, we want to live the way he has created us to live. That's our hope. Paul obviously wouldn't be giving any kind of prosperity gospel. I don't think he'd be comfortable with the purity culture because Paul's own ministry is marked with suffering and affliction. Paul's an example, this great apostle who's living rightly, and then what does he get? Shipwrecks, snake bites, all of these thrown in jail for long periods of time. He's a living embodiment of what it means to be hidden with Christ. He reflects the self-giving humility and afflictions of the crucified Christ. Paul also then uses an image that seems pretty dark. So he says, you have died So the things of your old life need to be put to death. So if you've died, you need to consider those things dead. In fact, actively declare them dead. They no longer define you. They no longer have hold over you. So you need to kill them, is what he's saying. Because the reality is that even though we've died to these things, they still tempt us. We're still constantly tempted to think that we're defined by these things, not our new life in Christ. So what are the things he talks about? Well, he says, you're no longer defined by sexual immorality. You don't need to have sex with people outside the context of marriage. That's not fulfilling for you. You don't need lust, he says. Lust is this objectification of other people for what they can do for you. You don't need that. You've died to that. You don't need greed. And he says, because that's idolatry, you're worshiping money. This is where Jesus's parable in our gospel reading is so challenging for us. He tells the story of a man whose land had produced a fine harvest. And in our world, that would mean he made a lot of money. You know, his business was doing well. And then he said, I don't have room to store all my crops. Gosh, business is going going so great. I've got to get a bigger house to contain my lifestyle, to, to keep up with my tax bracket, right? Like this is what's going on. So he says, I'll tear down the old barns and build new, bigger ones. Well, what's wrong with that? That just sounds like good American capitalism, right? That's how it's supposed to be. Well, the key is the next phrase. And I shall say to my soul, or say to myself, self, I love that part, say to my soul, soul, say to myself, self, you've got many good things stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, have a good time but how does God respond to that? Fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. And these things you've prepared, whose will they be? Where are they gonna go? They don't mean anything. In the first century, a person's land inheritance was tied up with their identity. So the holy land was promised to the children of Israel and it was divvied up and it was given to all the families of Israel and then it was passed down in your family from generation to generation. So this wasn't just an economic thing. This was also a religious thing. This is the holy land that we're in possession of and that we steward. But in Jesus, God is doing a new thing. Israel was not to hold tightly to their land and to their identity. They needed to understand the grace that God was showering now on all people, on all lands. Sometimes in our world, I think our possessions can hold us in a religious kind of way. We define ourselves by them. We have a certain good life that we're trying to achieve through our possessions. And we, as Christians, we're called to hold our stuff and to hold our status loosely. We hold our stuff loosely because inevitably, if we grip onto it too tightly, it will seek to define us and make us think that that's the goal. Getting more stuff or getting more status is the goal. And this isn't just for rich people, okay? Those of us who are not rich are still tempted to believe that our security is in our ability to produce wealth. Our society is built on the idea of human beings setting higher and higher goals for themselves. And what happens in our society is we're taught when you reach those goals, you set higher goals and you keep going higher and higher and higher. And that's what our whole system runs on. And it can easily get to the point where we think our stuff or our status is the point. But for Christian, that's why it's so radically different. It's not the point. We have to hold it loosely. My bishop Ed Gunger tells this story of when he pastored a church years ago in Marshfield, Wisconsin. And it's a town of less than 20,000 people. And his church at one point became like the happening thing in this little town, okay? And the church grew and he had worked and worked and worked. And he had in his mind this specific attendance goal he was trying to reach. And I can't remember if he said it was 200 or 400 people, but in a town of 20,000 people, that's a big church. So he's reaching for this goal. He's going for this goal. He's obsessed with his goal. He's pushing people to invite their friends. We just got to reach it. We just got to hit it. And finally, one Sunday, he reached his goal. He hit his goal. And he said, Preston, I went home after service and I felt more spiritually empty than I ever had before. I reached the goal, but what was that? In my mind, it was a number the number meant nothing. He said, I was obsessing over nothing. And we can do this with sales goals, savings account goals, debt goals, promotions. All of these are good things. These are blessings. When they happen, we should go, thank you God for this blessing, it's wonderful. And we should work hard for these things. So don't hear me say that, but they can't be our obsession. They can't be our identity. So he says this, so he talks about sexual stuff, he talks about greed, and then he talks about issues dealing with language. So he says, put to death all the stuff that divides you from people. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. You don't need to talk to people in ways that bring death, is what he says. This is a side note, but I've had a lot of conversations with people lately about language. And this is fair warning, I'm going to sound like the old guy in the room for a minute, okay? There's a lot of complaining right now about, and I hear it on all political perspectives, but about PC culture, about kind of how we speak, and people from every perspective are concerned about our culture being oversensitive in regards to language, okay? Can't say anything anymore. Can't say this anymore, can't say this anymore. And, and, I, and I wanna go on record to say, I think this concern is appropriate in a lot of places. I think if uh, government mandated for sure censorship is very dangerous road, I think when culture shames other people in certain ways for, for things, I heard a kind of a benign example the other day of somebody saying we don't say manhole anymore uh, when referring to kind of sewer holes in the ground because it has the word man in it so we need to kind of neutralize that and you go okay I get that but I get that that's extreme to say that you know all these kind of things so so I get that point but I do think as Christians we have to be really careful wading into this debate and here's why language always matters it matters And if we get to the point where we think that language doesn't matter and it's just language and people just say whatever they want, then that is dangerous. We are called as Christians to speak the truth in love. And that means as Christians, we never use language to abuse others, even in the name of telling it like it is, okay? We never use language in a way, even if it's out of honesty, that is abusive to someone. And I hope, we don't have time today, but I hope we can parse the difference between speaking truth, even strongly at times, and also doing it in a way that we hope will edify and build up the other person and not abuse them or tear them down. Does that make sense? So no matter what the laws are, what's appropriate to say, the church is called to be vigilant to ensure that our language builds people up, not tears people down. We put on a new self. It's like a new set of clothes that we wear. And this new self is resurrection, Paul is saying. It looks like God's new world. And that means it looks like Jesus. Why do we do all these things? Because these are the things of Jesus. Jesus is the one who gives himself up. He is the self-giving, restorative, healing God. So our language should be the language that is self-giving and restorative and healing. Now that doesn't mean our language is always rainbows and puppy dogs. That doesn't mean we just say sweet stuff all the time. There's Christian sweetness that is not the gospel, right? That's just fake talking. Paraphrasing the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, we could say that our language is not always called to be safe, but it will always be good. It'll always be true. Paul says we're no longer defined by our other identities. So he talks about you're no longer defined by sex, you're no longer defined by greed, put all that to death, put to death the ways that you speak to other people that are abusive and the language and that kind of stuff. But also we're no longer defined by our other identities. So not only put away these counterfeits, idols and abusive language, put away the things that lay claim to who you are to define you. So for Paul, it says Greek or Jew. If that's what primarily defined you, put it away. There's no longer circumcised or uncircumcised. If that's what you held yourself up as, as your primary identity, put it away. If you used to be a barbarian and that's how you think of yourself, put it away. If you used to be a Scythian and that's how you thought, put it away. If you were a slave or free, put it all away. It doesn't matter anymore. That's not your primary identity. And I think in our day, that means Paul would say there's no longer Republican or Democrat. There's no longer lower class or upper class. And yes, it means that race no longer primarily defines us. Now, I've talked about this before and how this passage is directed to the race or the cultural identity that is in the privileged position. So what we're not saying here is this kind of vague, well, I don't see color. I don't acknowledge a racial or ethnic group has been persecuted. That doesn't define you anymore, so I don't see any of that. No, that's not what this is saying. For us white folks, this means coming to grips with the fact that our whiteness has given us a leg up in many ways in society. And we have to renounce whiteness as our primary identity, even if we don't see the ways we've been defined by it. What are the other things that define you? Well, they all have to take a back seat because Christ is risen from the dead, Paul says. Republicans and Democrats come to the same table MAGA's and social justice warriors come to the same table. Black and white, Latinx and Asian, Tennessee fans and Alabama fans, they all come to the table together. We are a new family. I was around my nine-year-old nephew last week in Seattle. And one of the things I forgot about many little boys is the tendency to always wanna tussle and wrestle, okay? Lucy doesn't do that quite as much. She does that some, but, but this little boy, Eden, nine-year-old boy does that. And he just wants to fight all the time. <laughs> so I go into a room and he's just ready to fight. He just wants to fight. And he wants to prove that he can fight me. And it's been so long since I've spent much time with little boys. I, I thought at first, the first couple of days, I'm like, this kid does not like me. Like, he's just always trying to beat me up. He's always trying to fight me. Why is he trying to do this? He just wants to hurt me all the time. But one of the things I I remembered and talked to some people about is is these little boys, they're looking for a way to bond, for a way to bond through tussling. They're not being violent. They want to connect. They want the struggle. (laughs) That struggle is connecting. There's something in the struggle. And some of the things that you learn around little kids like this, and I've done this with Lucy, is how to lovingly struggle, okay? Okay. So think about that. You can lovingly struggle. You can block a punch and then kind of reach down and throw them over your shoulder, right? That's not violence. That's the struggle. That's that wrestling. With Lucy, fighting often turns into tickling or carrying her around the room. So we affirm violence is not good, but the struggle is good. Struggle is good. Thomas Kempis said, so many people are kept back from spiritual growth and from tackling their faults in earnest by one single fault, running away from difficulties. We don't like a tussle. That's what Thomas Akempis said. We don't like difficulties. We don't like the struggle. In our lives with God, I think we often want everything to just be smooth. Don't rock the boat. No existential tension, no challenge. Um, but being a good Christian is not just being nice to people. It's not just being a good neighbor. It's not just going on with the average American life. Being a Christian means coming face to face daily with our sin and putting it to death, reminding ourselves that these things no longer define who we are. So some questions that we might leave with this week is, in what ways might God be calling you to struggle this week? to come to grips with sin and idolatry in your life? Like what are those things that we're coming face to face with that we haven't wanted to stare in the eye, but it's there? I want to encourage you pastorally this morning to lean into the struggle. Don't lean away from it. Don't try to hide it or numb it. Resist the urge to say, ah, it's not really that big a deal. I'll deal with that another time. And then in that, I want to encourage you to resist legalism and shame. There's a difference between, I think conviction and the struggle says, hey, there's something that's not God's best here. What are some ways we can lean into that and lean into God's best? That's what conviction says. Shame is something different. Shame says you're bad and you're awful, right? You'll never quite be right. Resist shame and resist legalism and simple rule following, but also resist go with the flow. Resist this idea that things just so kind of magically come together. We are called to be vigilant. You have a new identity because of what God has done and you are called to live into that identity. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together.